We're going to read God's Word together today uh, out of 1 Samuel. Lord willing, we're going to try to go uh, from the beginning through the end of 1 and 2 Samuel this fall. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 1 through 3. So I'm going to just read a, a, a couple portions of this, these three chapters, uh, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9. So let's hear God's Word together today. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah arose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And then coming down to 1 Samuel chapter 2, this is Hannah's prayer, the beginning of it. Says this, and Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has borne many is forlorn. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it's good to come together today. It's good to be before your word, and it's good to be reminded of your great power. God, you work miracles. You overturn things that seem impossible. And so, God, we come today dependent upon the same Spirit uh, who moved in Hannah's womb, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same Spirit that gives us new life in you. God, we are dependent upon that Spirit to shape us according to your will. Use your word in your way according to your will, even now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, First and Second Samuel start the beginning, uh, well, really in the middle of, but a, a new chapter in an incredible story of God's people. And it reminded me that, that we all, as people, we love good stories, do we not? Whether that be the latest superhero movie that comes to the theaters or the latest summer novel that everybody wants to read, we love good stories. Good stories get us caught up in the action or the drama, and they put us on the edge of our seats waiting for what's going to happen next. And we love being caught up in that. And most good stories are filled with some really complex and dynamic and interesting characters. Usually there's the good guys and the bad guys or some mixture of both and a few different people. 
And, and we, we're always interested to, interested to see what, where they're going, what's happening next in their lives. What epic adventure are they going to take on? What challenge are they going to overcome? How do they grow and develop? Where do they fail and overcome their failures? We like following the plot lines of these people and these characters through their stories. And, and part of what makes that so interesting to us is we want to be one of the good guys. We want to be in the stories that, that, are, that are interesting and compelling. We want to be the ones that people could look back and say, they overcame the challenges, they overcame the obstacles, they defeated the bad guys, they were raised up and God used them, or we, whatever we may say that. God, we want to be a part of great stories. A good, compelling story is not something new to the 21st century, where we've got dynamic superhero movies or, or uh, a plethora of, of published novels. No, good stories are as old as the earth, and so we find the Bible, especially the Old Testament, filled with incredible stories. First and Second Samuel, which originally was just one book, uh, tells the remarkable story of how God's people transition from the time of Judges to the time of this monarchy. And many of our stories even today tell stories of kings and queens, princes and princesses, do they not? We have a fascination with all things castles and all things that are kingdom-based. And so there's all kinds of stories like that. And this is where the Bible's version of a king story starts out. The book of Judges in the Hebrew Bible was the one right before the book of Samuel. We have put Ruth between Judges and Samuel now because Ruth took place during that time period. But if you're reading in the Hebrew Bible, the last line before you start in Samuel is, There is no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the setting for this story as it starts out, where there's just a, a moral chaos throughout the land. The tribes of Israel are just kind of a loosely connected network of people that kind of only rally together when they need to, but usually are somewhat at war with one another. By the time you get to the peak of the monarchy under King David in 2 Samuel, there is this period, it's short, but there's a period of this golden age where the whole kingdom has come together and there's this just holy peace and this, this is the way things are supposed to be. First and Second Samuel tell the story of the rise out of the judges and into that monarchy and then afterwards and what all comes from there. This is an incredible story of God's people and how He works and what He does through them. And it's a beautiful picture of the way God raises up people and uses heroes and villains and all kinds of things. But a couple things are different about the story of 1 and 2 Samuel compared to all the novels out there or blockbuster hits, whatever it may be. One of, one of the main differences, this one's true. <laughs> this one's true. So it can be easy, if, I don't know about you, but I can get kind of lost in the literature of it, which is good. It is, it is a book. But it, it's, not, it's not just a, a fairy tale. These are true stories. This is the true history of God's people. And that truth is meant to communicate something really important to us. Which points me to the second thing that's different about this book. You see, in all of our hero stories, whether it's Batman or some novel or romance or whatever else, there's always a human hero. And even when we come to our Bibles, it can be easy to look to the Davids or to the Hannah today or to Samuel and say, this is the hero of the story. But if we do that, we're missing the greatest hero. I want to put it before you from the very beginning of 1 and 2 Samuel that the hero of 1 and 2 Samuel isn't Samuel, isn't David, isn't you, isn't me. It's God. And that's true of all the Bible. But I want to make sure that as, you come, as we come to these stories with all these complex plots and characters, that we don't miss the big idea, the big picture. God is king. 
He is the hero. He is sitting on his throne. He always has been and always will be. It's just whether or not we recognize it. And so as we dive into 1 and 2 Samuel, I want you to, to see your hero here. I want you to see your God who sits on his throne. I want you to see his greatness and his goodness. And I want us to worship him together. We'll encounter God himself throughout these stories. And what's incredible about seeing this is that not just seeing, when we, when we see the greatness of, of Hannah or the greatness of David, we, we, can, we can applaud those things, but those people aren't here. The amazing thing about worshiping the God, the hero of First and Second Samuel, is that same God who is there is also here. He is with us. He wasn't just king in Israel. He is king today over us and over our lives. No king or kingdom has ever lasted as long as God has. No king or kingdom has ever been on his throne as long as God has. God is in charge, and we get to worship him. I love where this epic story begins. This is a story of kings and kingdoms. And you would imagine that like, if this is going to be a, an incredible royal story, this has to start in a palace somewhere or some majestic people or whatever else. No, this story starts with an ordinary Israelite woman. And there's something to be said there that we've got to, we've got to make sure we see this in the Bible, that God all along has created man and woman as equals in God's sight. And here is a woman taking a very prominent place in the book about his king and his kingdom. Hannah's name means favored one. And yet as soon as we meet her, we realize she is barren. She does not have children. She's been unable to have children. And so it seems like her, her, her name is almost, a, uh, it's, it's ironic. It's almost painful that she's supposed to be favored. And yet though she wants children, she cannot have them. To make matters worse, she has a rival. We meet her husband, Elkanah, and his other wife, Penina. And when many times we come to the Old Testament, we read little details like that. We expect the Bible to say, wait, wait this was a bad idea. And you read through and the, the commentator doesn't really comment on the fact that he's got two wives. But if you read the Bible enough, you recognize when that happens, when people go against God's intention for something like marriage, it's not going to go well. And sure enough, it doesn't. Panina has children, Hannah does not, and the other wife is cruel about it. 1 Samuel 6 and 7, we read that about Hannah, that her rival, meaning Panina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah's sister wife taunted her as if her barrenness wasn't hard enough. Still today, infertility can be an incredibly painful thing for people to experience. For people who are longing to have a child and yet can't, there's this deep ache in people's hearts. Not everyone wants to have children, but when people do and can't, there can be a, a, a deep pain there. And you can read and resonate with Hannah's sorrow over and over again. That you read words like her heart was sad. She was deeply distressed. She wept bitterly. She was a woman troubled in spirit. She had great anxiety and vexation. Over and over again, you hear this woman is struggling. You can't miss it. She's upset. And yet, if you know your Bible... There's a little flag that you raise up and you go, wait, 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 hold on. Even if you don't know this story, if you've just read from Genesis to this point, your ears may pay attention and say, wait, something great is about to happen. 
You, can, you see, when the Bible introduces to us somebody who is barren, it's a little light bulb that says, wait to see what God does next. Because when Hannah is announced as a barren woman, she joins the matriarchs of Genesis. Sarah, who is married to Abraham. Rebecca, who is married to Isaac. Rachel, who is married to Jacob. These are all women who originally were barren and could not have children. Though they were growing older, though people around them were having children, they could not have children. And yet God showed up in incredible ways. Just a book before Samson, the most famous judge probably, his mom, Manoah, originally could not have children. When, when the Bible tells us about this woman who is barren, if you know your Bibles, you go, well, I know this is sad, Hannah, but I can't wait to see what God does next. And he doesn't disappoint. Hannah starts, uh, the, the, the switch happens, or the, the transition happens as she begins to pray. She and her husband and the other wife, they're all gone up to the temple to pray. And 1 Samuel 1, 10 11 says, And Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget not your servant, but will give your, son, your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah's promise is, God, if you will grant me this request, I'll give it to you. If you give this gift to me, it's all yours. It's all yours, God. This child, if you give me a child, he is yours. And this is a a, a line about a Nazarite vow, the same thing that Samson was famous for. He said, I'll give my son to you. She's not not quite sure what exactly God's going to do, but she's promising that she will give this to the Lord. She is praying so passionately that Eli thought she was drunk. She's pouring out her soul so much. And we'll see that probably tells us more about Eli than does about Hannah. But the point is about how Hannah handled her barrenness, how she handled it. She could have done any number of things in her trouble. And yet, where does she go for help? She comes to the Lord. This morning, I want to encourage you to do the same. That whatever barrenness you're facing, whatever struggles you're facing, cry out to the Lord. Cry out to God in our barrenness. Hannah comes to us as this remarkable testimony of faith because whatever else, wherever else she could have turned to, she comes to God. She cried out to God and begged for Him to be the one that intervenes in her life. That may seem obvious to us because we're reading in the Bible and you're in church. So of course, when you have a problem, you go to God. That makes sense, right? And yet how often when we have a problem, do we turn to anything else other than God? Or if we do turn to God, it's only as a last resort. Praise God then that we do at least turn then. Praise God that you turn to Him eventually. And maybe that's, God, that's why God made all the other things not work out, so you would turn to Him. But when we have a struggle, when we have a problem, would it be, not be better to pray first and last and all the way through the middle? That's the intention of God's, the way He has orchestrated the world. When we have a problem, He, our Heavenly Father, longs for us to come to Him with that problem. There's always a place for growing in in wisdom, human wisdom and innovation, and working hard to try to figure something out. But even the strength, even the mental capacity to make those kind of decisions is a gift from the Lord. And so even as we're working toward a solution, we're praying, we're begging, pleading for God to answer. We don't save God just as a last resort. We want to come to Him first, last, and all through the middle. God, we praise God that He answers prayers. Usually when we feel like there's, there's at least something we can do on our own to solve our own problem, we turn there first. 
and we save God for last. We have to recognize that all the most important things in the world that we need are really beyond our power. Do you know that? Do you know that the, the sinfulness in our hearts, the wickedness in our hearts, the, the, the problems in other people's hearts, those are things we can't change. I can't change your heart. You can't change your heart. You can't change my heart. The biggest things that we need in the world are in God's control. And so are the smallest things. All the things we actually need belong to God. So many of the big themes out of First and Second Samuel, uh, of, the whole, of the, all the books, are, are right here in the first chapters. And here's a first one, uh, as we've already talked about. God's in control. He's the king. If he's the king who's sitting on the throne, then when we need something, where else would we go but to the king? We come to him dependent upon him. We cry out to him in our barrenness. I wonder if you can resonate with that idea of being barren. Maybe, maybe literally, maybe actually you've dealt with infertility and the struggles that that, that brought. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a, a form of, of shame or sickness, physical or emotional pain, trauma or grief, struggles at home or at work, things you've done or things you've left undone. Maybe it's recent, as recent as this week. Maybe it's longer, lifelong even. Oftentimes we carry baggage with us and we begin to walk with a limp through life, struggling with things we may be carrying. When you carry those things through life, you should know that you have a Heavenly Father who wants to help you carry Him. You should, you should know that you have a Heavenly Father who wants to hear your plea. He wants to hear your heart. And He cares for you. Cry out to God with our barrenness. Turn to the one who is in charge of all kings and all kingdoms. He is in charge of life and death. He's in charge of conception and creation. He is the God of the cosmos. And He is in control. Throughout First and Second Samuel, one of the things the author of this book does to help us see it better is it puts two things or two people or two groups contrasted with one another. And so here we have Hannah, this woman of incredible faith, and she's praying at the doorpost of the temple right next to Eli. And you would think this is a priest, this is a man who is holy, this is a man who should understand, and yet he can't even recognize passionate prayer when it's right in front of him. Maybe that tells us something about the whole nation of Israel. Apparently not many people came and prayed like she did. But it also tells us something about Eli. Throughout the next couple of chapters, he's different, he's different times he's described as blind. He's described as, as, the, as lights are going dim. The idea is he, he doesn't have a spiritual awareness, which highlights all the more this woman, an ordinary woman, coming and pleading before God. She knows where to go to find help. She goes to the Lord. I pray that we, like Hannah, would see God as the source of our, of our help, the source of our salvation, and that we would be constant and we would be fervent in prayer. Now, just to be clear, just because we pray a certain way with passion or fervor doesn't automatically twist the arm of God like He's got to give you exactly what you want. That's not how prayer works. Prayer is not some magic formula that we just all of a sudden change the mind of God. No, no, no. There have been many a time people have prayed passionately. Just go further into, into these books. David, King David. If anybody's God's going to answer his prayers, it's King David, right? He prays for a young newborn child to live, and he doesn't. The child dies. God doesn't always give us exactly what we want when we want it. Sometimes God says yes or no or wait. God's in charge. The, the outcome's not our choice, not our decision. 
But who we look to for the solution, that is, we come to God with our prayers. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, God does say, yes. Hannah conceives and bears a son and names him Samuel. And there are, there are, there are two, two main problems in these opening chapters. The first being Hannah's barrenness. And we're going to see that both of these problems, Samuel is the solution. Samuel's the answer. So Samuel's the one that God sends as the answer to Hannah's prayer, giving her what she longs for, and she rejoices over this. 1 Samuel 1, 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. She comes back to the temple and keeps her promises, dedicates her son, and gives thanksgiving for the God who answers prayers. Do you pray asking for help? And if God answers, do you pray and rejoice and thank God for it? Hannah does both, and she keeps her word. Samuel then grows up in the temple. Essentially, he becomes kind of adopted by Eli the priest, and he's there to serve in the temple all the days of his life. And we read about him growing up. Uh, and we read how Hannah every year would bring him a new robe, a linen ephod, the priestly garment. 1 Samuel 2.21, uh, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Again, verse 26, the boy continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. But then right after Sam, we meet Samuel as he gets to the, to the temple to the, serve in the Lord. Just like Hannah was contrasted with Eli, so now Samuel is contrasted with Eli's sons. Samuel is doing the right thing. He's serving the Lord. But the, the priest that was already there, his sons are falling far from the Lord. We meet two, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they are wicked. They're stealing portions from people's offerings that should have gone to the Lord. And they're sleeping with the girls who are serving in the temple. They're directly sinning against God and defiling God's holy ground. Their sin is pictured as horrendous, directly against God, directly in his face. Eli learns of their sins and rebukes them, kind of mildly, but he rebukes them. And, and um, in chapter 2, 25, 22 to 25, he warns them of their sin, and yet they do not listen. So my first challenge to you was to imitate what Hannah did. My second challenge to you is to do what Eli's sons should have done. We cry out to God in our barrenness, and what we should do is we should confess to God our sinfulness. That's where Eli's sons fell short. An unnamed man of God came to Eli in 1 Samuel, 1, uh, 1 Samuel 2, 27 and pronounced judgment on his household and even told Eli, you honor your sons above me. He, he, didn't, he didn't rebuke them like he should have. He didn't train them the way they should. And their sin together would be very costly because they failed to repent. When you go through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel's books of 1 and 2 Samuel, it's easy to see where, God, where good, there's good guys and bad guys, where good things happen and bad things happen. But one of the things we may miss if we're not careful is that all of us are sinners. The main contrast is not the people who never sin and the people who do sin. There's nobody who doesn't sin. Here's one of the big differences in First and Second Samuel and all the books of the Bible is not whether or not they sin. It's what they do once their sin is called out. The difference between the good guys and the bad guys is that the good guys are the ones who repent. They're the ones who can confess their sins and turn back to God. Will you recognize your sin? Do you recognize the wickedness of your own heart? Will you confess that to God? Can you acknowledge your sinful behavior 
and admit that before him so that you can turn away from it. Whereas your barrenness, like Hannah's, maybe something that has happened to you or a circumstance that you've been involved in, the wickedness, the sinfulness is something we have done. It's problems that we have gotten ourselves into. First and second Samuel 1, 1 through 3 here shows us both bad problems and things that we've done that are bad. Can you admit your sin to God, past, present, that we've done, and repent of it? For some of us, the, it's, we're okay acknowledging sin far enough away or, or the polite kinds of sins, but can you acknowledge sins that are still ongoing? Can you acknowledge sins that are an embarrassment? Can you, can you bring it to the light before the Lord? 1 John 1, 6 says, If we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Are, are you walking in darkness? Are you living life in such a way that, that if, if people saw that thing you're doing, you would be embarrassed? Can you, can you live your life before the Lord and say, this, this is, I'm in the light. I want to bring it to the light. Or are you keeping something in darkness? Satan wants to tell you, wants to try to convince you that you can just keep it hidden. You can just keep the darkness and it'll be okay there. But God wants to tell you, no, it doesn't help you. It brings pain and shame and guilt all the more. But if we can bring it to the light, the good news is that God offers forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Can you confess it? Can you bring it to the light? Can you turn from your wicked ways? Can you turn from your sin and allow Him to bring healing? When Eli rebuked his sons in chapter 2, verse 25, it says, They would not listen to the voice of their father. Are you listening to the voice of your Father? Are you listening to the Word of God? Are you letting it speak into your life to reveal sin and can call you to confession? Hannah's barrenness is the first problem. Eli's sins and his son's sins is the second problem. In both cases, Samuel's arrival is the solution. Eli's sons would not listen, but 1 Samuel chapter 3 is all about how, Eli, how Samuel learns to hear the voice of God. 1 Samuel 3 is maybe one of the more famous uh, passages out of the early parts of these books where the, the boy Samuel, we don't know how old he is, but he, along with Eli, his mentor and kind of adopted father, are, are about to go to sleep. They're, they're nodding off to sleep, caring for the temple, and the, the lamp has not quite gone out. And Samuel is either asleep or close to it, and he hears a voice, Samuel. And the only person around is Eli, so Samuel gets up and he runs to Eli, assuming Eli had called his name. And Eli says, no, it wasn't me, Samuel. I didn't, I didn't call your name. Go lay back down. That happens three times. He hears a voice. Samuel, he gets up, he runs to Eli. No, it wasn't me. Third time, Samuel runs to Eli. No, it wasn't me. And on the third time, it says, Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, you should say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid back down, and sure enough, God called out again, Samuel, Samuel. And, and Samuel stands up and says, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Samuel learned to hear the voice of God. Eli's sons were running far from him in their sin. They were not listening to God's voice. But here is Samuel hearing and understanding the voice of God. The message he gets is one of judgment upon Eli and his sons. He's rebuking them for their sin. And so God has taught this man, Samuel, this young boy, to hear his voice so they can begin to follow him. 
Samuel is the one God used to heal Hannah's barrenness. And Samuel is the one that God used to call out Eli and the whole nation's sin. He's turning over a new leaf. It says that the, the word of God was not common in those days. There were no common vision. And yet here is a new beginning where Samuel begins to hear God's word and share it with God's people. This tells us about how great our God is. Hannah was the first one to see this major shift coming for the people of Israel. And if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have this incredible song that Hannah sings. Not only is she faithful in prayer, not only is she uh, an you know, obedient, faithful wife and woman, but she's a poet, a songwriter, and tells, sings this beautiful song back to God. And in it, she's even prophetic. She starts with a song of joy, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in my Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She celebrates the character of God. She sings of His goodness and His grace. There's none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. God is uniquely dependable and set apart and holy and righteous. She's worshiping God for all those things. But then she talks about something that, that if you didn't, didn't know it was there, you're like, why, why would she talk like this? But it's incredible. She says, God is turning everything upside down. God has taken, because God has taken her barren womb and brought life in it, she sees this is, this is going to happen in much bigger ways than we thought. Verse 7, the Lord made, makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The mighty are brought low. The humble are exalted. Things are turning around, not just for this one woman, but for the whole nation of Israel. You see, previously there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But God is bringing a new season, a new change, and new life. She ends her song with this incredibly prophetic line. Verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed. Strength to His king, but there's no king. How could, how could, God, raise, how could God give strength to a king when there is no king? She sees what's about to happen. Even more so, when David is later on anointed as king, he is anointed with, with it says, a, a horn of oil. So Hannah, with eyes of faith, could see there's coming a king in Israel, and he's bringing change. He's bringing salvation. God is about to bring new life to our people, and God is doing that even now. Eli, the priest, had warned his sons, if someone sins against God, against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? There's this theme running throughout that something big is happening. Something big is changing in Israel, and it's bigger than we could imagine. Again, in 1 Samuel 2.35, God was speaking through a prophet. He told Eli, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever? Forever? He says there's a priest who's going to last forever? There's something bigger going on. The humble, the meek, they will be the ones ruling. The ones who are rich and powerful are coming down. Samuel's going to be great, but, but he's going to die eventually. What, what is he talking about here? There's something bigger happening. 
about a thousand years after Hannah, there was another family who were, was barren. And this woman was also connected to a priest and to a household of God. The priest's name was Zechariah. His wife, Elizabeth, was older and had been, it was advanced in years, and she was barren. She had not had children. And yet God showed up one day while Zechariah was serving in the temple and said, Your wife is going to have a son, and you shall name him John. Later on, they called that child John the Baptist, and his job was to prepare the way of the Lord. There are only three times in the Bible that we read of a son who is dedicated from birth to serve a lifelong Nazarite vow. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. All three women were barren before they had this child. About six months after Elizabeth receives her vision, there is another young woman who could not have children because she was a virgin. She had not yet been married. She was another ordinary, regular faithful Israelite woman, and her name was Mary. And God appeared to her while she, uh, long before, before she was even married, and God spoke to her and said, you're going to conceive and bear a son by the Holy Spirit. God had been working in barren woman all the way since Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Manoah, Samson's mom, Hannah, Elizabeth, and then he outdoes himself. He comes to a woman who was a virgin, and she conceives and bears a child. When Mary learns about the, the coming child that's going to come from her womb, she sings a song of joy and a song about the reversal of the kingdom of God. She sings, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servants. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the wrench he has sent away empty. He has helped the servants of Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary knew the song of Hannah back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And she rewrites the same song, different verse, about how God's kingdom is this total reversal, this upside-down world where God brings justice and peace from the most unlikely of sources. And when Anna, Hannah had sung her song, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I, I cannot imagine that she even knew how true that was. The word for anointed is, the word, is where we get the word in English, Messiah. That's the Hebrew word that means anointed. And in Greek, that word is Christ. The reason we call Jesus Christ is because he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. Hannah could sense the king was coming, the anointed one was coming, but she probably had no idea just how true her words were, that there one day would be a king and a priest who would reign forever, and that by his work, all things would be made right, and people could once again come into the presence of God. God was at work in Hannah and Samuel, so the people then and for us today, we could see God's character and that we would trust in Him. So here's my last challenge for you today. Humbly trust God in our brokenness because He has already raised up our Deliverer. You can trust God right now in your brokenness because He has already raised up our Deliverer. Seeing Samuel as the Deliverer in his time helps us to see how Christ is our Deliverer today. God provided for Hannah and for Israel, and God provides for us today. Do you know your barrenness? 
Do you see the, the, the limp that you're walking with? Do you see the brokenness inside you? The sins that we need to confess? If you can see those needs, then I invite you to see your Savior. To see the one who is our anointed one, the deliverer, the king, the priest, the Messiah. Christ who has come. He is our hero and we need his help. There's one pastor and writer, Peter Lehart, who pointed out one, the significance of one small detail that I'll, I'll leave you with. When Hannah was praying at the temple, 1 Samuel 1, 9, Eli was watching her as he was sitting at the doorpost of the temple. And that seems like a pretty insignificant detail. I, I didn't see this on my own. Except when you go back and look at other places where doorways have shown up, the woman Sarah, who's married to Abraham, when she learns about how God was going to open up her womb and bring a, a, the, the promised child from her, you know where she was standing in Genesis 18.10? She was standing in a doorway when the angels told Abraham about this. In the Exodus story, when the Israelites were, were beginning the, the, the Passover day, when they were about to leave to go out, out from under slavery and into the promised land, you know where they all walked? They all walked underneath the doorway that they had just put blood over the top of so the lamb so the, the the angel of death would pass over them their new birth came through a doorway even in a child's physical birth is pictured as this doorway of God opening a womb and in 1 Samuel 3:15 when Samuel had learned to hear the voice of God the first thing he did that morning is that he opened the doors of the house of the Lord an open door is a symbol of new life it's God bringing life out of death. God bringing people who were slaves out to freedom. God, who, God working in people who had not heard the voice of God and they now hear the voice of God. God brings resurrection when He moves away a tombstone and brings somebody out of the door and into life. I want you to see the resurrection hope we have in Christ. They came through a barren womb. It came through an empty tomb. And it came so that you would have new life, so that you could trust your God, you could trust your Savior. No matter the depth of your brokenness, no matter the depth of your sin, you can see Him and you can worship Him. You can trust in Him. If you have the, if you have the humility to see that you need Him and that He is always with you. Humbly trust God, no matter your brokenness, because God has raised up a deliverer and His name is Jesus.